You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our science episode. As always, today I am joined with Dr. Jane Zelikova, Executive Director of the Soil Carbon Solutions Center and Joint Faculty in Crop and Soil Science at Colorado State University. Hi, Jane. Hello. And again, uh, excited to have Dr. Shannon Valley back with us as our new permanent host on the science episodes. <laughs> she is a paleoceanography and marine biogeochemistry researcher. That is a mouthful, but impressive. <laughs> you <laughs> got it. Served on Joe Biden's NASA transition team and is currently a AAAS science and technology policy fellow at the U.S. Agency for International Development or USAID. Hi, Shannon. Hey, good to be with you. And I guess I should give a little disclaimer that, of course, my thoughts on the podcast are my own. Oh, yes. Always our own. Uh, none of us are representing anybody, I do not believe. No. And I, <laughs> I am Radhika Mulgafkar, Head of Supply and Methodology at Nori. So um, I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with the fact that just plant trees. It's sort of the thing that everybody can agree on. It seems easy. People love it. But is it true that a living tree draws down CO2 as it grows? Can mass forestation really slow climate change? You know, as always, the math around forest carbon sequestration, just like all nature-based solutions, is complicated. So this week, or recently, a new study from Israeli researchers shed some lights on the forestation of carbon math. Specifically, this study evaluated whether afforestation in arid environments or in geographies that currently do not support trees would lead to carbon removal if we take into account albedo. This combined with data that new data that shows that deforestation did not slow down enough this year to meet international climate agreements put the, puts the potential for forests to deliver additional climate mitigation into question. So with that, I'm gonna start with you, Jane, and can you give us a sense of how important forestry is to global climate ambitions? Uh, does this paper talk about existing forests or speculate about planting new forests? Yeah, thanks. Um, I guess I'll start by saying that a lot of uh, government climate plans and nationally con uh, determined contributions rely on forestation uh, either in country or uh, as part of an offset framework. Um, a lot of uh, ESG investing rules and sort of regulations are also relying on forests and most of the voluntary carbon offset markets are relying heavily on forest projects to deliver CO2 offsets or removals. So forestry as a sector is huge in this space and we're asking forests to do a lot for us. And I like this tweet by David Ho, who is um, an, actually an ocean scientist, but he, uh, he has been tweeting a lot about sort of how a particular set of actions, if we think about like a climate clock, how far back those climate actions can take us. And he had a tweet a few uh, months ago where someone asked how far back in time does planting 100 million trees take us? 
And his answer was, if one mature tree takes up an average of 25 kilograms of CO2 per year, then 100 million trees will take up 2.5 metric, uh, metric tons of carbon dioxide. That's a time machine that takes us back 33 minutes and 47 seconds in a year. It's not a lot. It's the length of this podcast, maybe. Um, so planting trees isn't going to be the magic wand that we need. And also it's good to just kind of remember that trees are already doing a lot of work for us. They're already taking up a lot of carbon dioxide. And in many regions, they're helping us balance the carbon budget. Um, so we're, we're, you know, asking trees to do more. We should be careful about that. So with that in mind, forestry is very important. Climate ambitions are relying on forest, uh, both halting deforestation and afforestation efforts. Um, and so the, the paper that you referenced, the recent paper, sort of talks about the effort to plant trees into dryland areas, either in areas that don't support trees or have historically not supported trees, or in some areas, reforestation of uh, reforestation efforts to kind of plant trees back and maybe shift some of the some of the species that are being planted. Uh, Jane, as just as a follow-on question, something that I was wondering was why were they trying to plant trees in a place that doesn't support trees? I, right. I never really understood that uh, logic. Do you have a sense? Yeah, I mean, I think dry, you know, dryland ecosystems certainly support some trees. Like I think about areas I've worked in uh, Utah where, you know, it's a pinion pine juniper ecosystem. So they're supporting trees. They're just not sort of like supporting them in really high density in most places. Um, and then on top of that, we have countries like Saudi Arabia uh, that are, you know, claiming really large ambitions about, you know, sort of forestering, foresting the desert. So um, there are dryland ecosystems that are going to be, or, and are currently undergoing afforestation efforts. So, um, and it's an interesting thing to, to think about because when you're planting trees in dryland ecosystems, you're think, you have to really think about water availability, nutrient availability. So those are probably gonna be the really high limit limitations. So when people are doing these mapping studies where they're trying to figure out where to put trees, um, these are mostly modeling efforts with some sort of like on the ground efforts to, to kind of as a follow along. Um, they have to think about water availability in these modeling studies, but even if you limit the geographic scope to just those areas where there's enough water and enough nutrients to support forested ecosystems, what the study is suggesting is that there are other factors at play, specifically the, the albedo effect that may limit the potential climate benefit of these efforts. So Shannon, turning to you, you know, obviously we all know a single tree does sequester carbon dioxide and shouldn't, you know, a lot of trees sequester a lot of carbon dioxide. What are these complicating dynamics that David kind of alludes to and um, we should all learn a little bit more about? Yeah, I mean, he goes into a lot. And I think, but the biggest thing that we always wind up talking about in this area is scale, right? So I think later on, some of the comments he talks about there being about, three trillion trees existing naturally. So if you talk about adding another million, that's seems like a lot, a million seems like, a hundred million seems like a big number rather, but compared to three trillion, that's, it's in some ways it feels like a drop in the bucket. And, you know, if we're talking about 
uh, anthropogenic emissions being on the scale of about 40 gigatons or whatnot a year. Um, just the, the, I think that he talks about 2.5 um, megatons of carbon drawdown from trees if you plant 100 million. Um, obviously, as Jane was saying, trees are already doing a lot of work for us. And if we're asking them to do even more, the numbers that you have to get to to really to, to kind of knock out that overall um, human impact is, is beyond the scale of what we can probably feasibly do. Um, that's not to say that we should do it. It's just that we have to be thoughtful about what's, how scale matters. And then, of course, there's all the other kind of issues, including with the papers talking about um, the albedo effect um, that comes into play. You have to think about, you know, again, where you're planting, if the, the trees can take plants successfully, if you're adding density to some areas that increases kind of like a monoculture, what other ecosystem effects does that have that would reduce the overall ability of that ecosystem to store carbon? Trees need to not burn down quickly and so on. So there's a lot of things there, but the first thing that comes to my mind is just the scale of the problem and um, this being a kind of sliver of the overall pie of how we would get to drawing down carbon emissions. Um, so Jane, I want to dive a little bit more into the paper itself. Can you describe a little the, about the methods in the paper and how did the researchers evaluate their hypothesis? Yeah, this, this is actually pretty cool. Um, so they started with a suitability analysis. So they basically looked at all land cover and used some biological criteria that we talked about, like where can trees even go in the first place? Where is there enough water to sustain tree growth to identify potential areas where afforestation efforts could actually uh, occur. Um, and then that's like a general suitability analysis that gave about 50% of the restoration potential for um, forest uh, restoration occurs in dryland ecosystems. So that's like the top level. And then they looked at the um, limiting the that 50%, they looked at the contribution of potential albedo effects. And so it's kind of worth talking about what albedo is. And so if you're thinking about um, a really basic kind of uh, maybe easiest example is like, think about the Sahara Desert and sort of this like light tan color that is uh, reflecting, uh, it's absorbing some light and reflecting uh, some light back into the atmosphere. So if you're going out on a sunny day and a warm day in a white t-shirt, you're reflecting a lot of that sun back into the atmosphere. So you don't get as hot as if you're wearing a really dark t-shirt, right? So or like a thing. reflector in the car. Right, exactly. Like yeah, you get into a really, window. Mm -hmm. totally get into a really dark, a black car in the summer and you're like cooking. So the same thing happens when you plant trees, you're changing the color uh, of the, the land surface uh, from something that may be lighter when you didn't have trees there to something now that's like a dark shade of green, which is absorbing more heat um, than it is reflecting back. So that's like the albedo effect. So they, so they looked at that land cover and then started to consider this like albedo effect and whether or not um, the, the carbon drawdown in those suitable areas is going to be offset by the additional kind of local warming that happens because the area is darker. Um, and they used a combination of remote sensing uh, tools, basically how we kind of measure what's happening on the ground from, a, from, this, from space. And they used some data-based estimations 
Um, they also used two previously published forest restoration data sets um, that applied a set of different criteria than this particular study, but they used those data to look at um, potentially using uh, uh, higher density of woody vegetation and tree planting in areas that were once covered by forests but that no longer support. So reforestation, not afforestation. Um, and then they simulated this carbon sequestration and albedo effect using restoration maps and uh, modeling. And then they basically were able to combine all of those methodologies to create these new forestation maps that simulate the sort of maximum climate change mitigation potential that's available from these restoration or reforestation efforts, specifically focused in dryland ecosystems. So not, not all of the globe, but just areas that like, you know, receive less than a certain amount of rainfall per year. Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool um, approach and method, I think, and um, produce some very interesting results. Um, Shannon, I wanted to, um, Jane did a really nice job and, and you did both of you of describing what albedo is, but can you just maybe expand a little bit on its importance in carbon removal generally? Because it's not just applicable, obviously, to tree coverage and things. It has its impacts, uh, I think, across potentially nature-based solutions and how we think about them. Yeah, well, normally when we talk about albedo as effect on the overall climate, it's it's something that impacts the overall radiative balance of the planet. So how much heat is stays absorbed within the planet um, on, and on the surface versus how much is reflected back into space. Um, so the high albedo beto areas of our planet, so those high reflective icy snowy areas, and, and as Jane was saying, like the Sahara um, desert, deserted regions, they help uh, regulate the planet's radiative balance by pushing the thermostat down a bit. And so again, what this paper is discussing is converting, if you're adding trees, which are darker, you're converting some of that lower albedo land area to high, or, sorry, you're converting some of the higher albedo land area, the more arid areas, um, to potentially um, lower albedo area, so more heat trapping. Um, and so, and there's, I think, one of the, that's, that reduces um, some of the overall global cooling effects that planting a large number of trees should produce. So a nuanced um, point that the paper actually makes is that the trees can be locally cooling um, due to their evaporative effects, but overall the albedo effect um, at scale is, is um, reducing their cooling effects by adding all this dark land cover where it wasn't before. Uh, always so many things to think about. Um, so Jane, why I think I think Shannon was getting into this, but let's just be really explicit about why uh, does foresting in some regions closer to the equator have better CDR potential than at those at higher latitudes? And you know, as you uh, both reviewed this paper, this is for both of you. What made you? How do you think we should be thinking about future efforts to use forestation as a climate tool? Start with you, Jane. Yeah, I, mean, I think um, I think about the fact that uh, well, tropical regions are still really diverse, and I think we've talked about this in the past. That, like the tropics isn't a monolith, and you have a lot of like ecosystem variation even in the tropics, including dryland regions that don't receive a lot of precipitation, and, and then regions that get a lot. 
Um, but I think generally sort of tropical ecosystems have a bit of their own climate uh, where uh, sort of moisture availability from wetter regions um, can drive a lot of productivity. And so if we focus our efforts on areas that receive ample rainfall and can support really like diverse thriving forested ecosystems, if we put our efforts into those areas, I think we get a lot of bang for our buck. Um, and because those ecosystems have traditionally supported forests. In, and so um, versus thinking about sort of planting trees in Saudi Arabia, where you haven't had a lot of uh, tree cover in the past, um, I think the sort of the, the local uh, resource limitations may become really important um, and might not sustain those forests for the long term. And we need these forests not just like sort of established, but to also grow for long enough to actually deliver a climate benefit and a carbon drawdown benefit. That's kind of a key thing that I think about. And tropical ecosystems, again, diverse as they are, um, have a long history of supporting forests. And I think that's a really large area where we can do a lot of CDR. That doesn't mean we should. There are lots of other considerations besides carbon drawdown that really should, that should drive where we, where we focus our efforts. I don't know what, Shannon, what do you think? Yeah, and I think um, to think about um, the kind of carbon crediting uh, point of this with afforestation, reforestation. So carbon storage is just one, like you were saying, this is just one type of ecosystem service that forest provides. They also help clean our air, they clean our water, cycle soil nutrients, protect us from flooding and erosion. There's all these different Biodiversity, of course, is a huge one, um, although I think the article noted correctly that dry lands have their own important ecological niches. And so if you're if you're changing that, then maybe you, you, there's some loss there, too. But in general, yeah, I think that if you're talking about um, kind of monetizing it, paying to preserve those kinds of or, or to, to restore those kinds of ecosystems, I think about that kind of as a market correction in a way. So, you know, the free market obviously is not. Uh, it famously doesn't penalize for a lot of environmental destruction, and it also doesn't pay folks um, for uh, environmental benefits. Um, so obviously, in a lot of cases, if people aren't financially incentivized to protect trees, or if they're not incentivized to plant them, then they're not going to do it. Um, so you know, paying for carbon storage plus all of these other benefits is a way to kind of secure those win-wins that we all want. Um, and in theory, this could also be a way to compensate and um, support climate adaptive capacity um, for folks, including indigenous people who are not big emitters historically and today. Um, but I wanna acknowledge that there are people who also believe that nature should not so simply just not be commodified in that way, but that it should just be respected for its inherent and infinite value. Um, so, you know, I, I think of it as, um, as a, these are win-wins to pursue, um, but there's different different thoughts on that. I think they should all be respected. I also, um, I just went to a talk yesterday where uh, a researcher talked about, actually Dr. Lauren Gifford, who studied uh, forestry projects in uh, Peru for her PhD. And she kind of brought up, she's a social scientist and she brought up this idea that while sort of like carbon projects are being used as a financial kind of mechanism to deliver money to conservation projects ultimately. So carbon projects are just a vehicle for conservation. 
um, in some of these forest ecosystems, there are a lot of other factors to consider um, in terms of land ownership structure and sort of like other uh, harms that could come from focusing on carbon projects specifically and forest projects specifically, especially in areas where people are already living. So there are forests that are already supporting indigenous populations, people that might not um, have the like sort of language um, cap capabilities or education to, to read contracts that they're signing. Um, and that in many instances, in order for these forestry projects to like sort of expand and thrive, it requires those people to be displaced from their homeland. So there are a lot of other considerations when we think about scaling CDR um, that have to do with like how it affects people and even sort of like indigenous people that might say they're supportive of a carbon project might not fully understand the contractual obligation that they're entering into when they sign up. Um, and in many instances, the organizations that are running the carbon projects uh, sort of threaten to take something like uh, healthcare or education away if these people don't sign these contracts. So in that case, like it's a different kind of colonialism and extraction, um, all kind of in the name of carbon, uh, carbon drawdown. So they're just, it's a really complicated set of things to consider and no two carbon projects or no, no two forestry carbon projects are really the same. Yeah, that's rough. And that also reminds me, I heard something good the other day um, at a conference where somebody said, don't confuse activity with accomplishment. And, and that's, I think that's always a good, <laughs> good words to live by, right? I mean, I, I'm going to take that really personally, just because I've like read all my emails doesn't mean I've done anything. Oh, <laughs> I know. I know. So many emails. Uh, all right. Well, let's let's pivot just for a few minutes to something um, uh, also related to forestry that I think Shannon, um, you know, actually was was heading towards is that, you know, at the end of the October, the forest declaration assessment published the first analysis of global deforestation since COP26. Um, they found good news and bad news. The good the good news is the deforestation has decreased by 6% compared to 2018 baselines. Unfortunately, the bad news is the decreased needs to grow to 10% to meet climate goals. Um, so Shannon, how did this report measure the rate of deforestation across the globe? And you know, how, how could they really measure that or know that? Satellites. Yeah. <laughs> Love an earth observing satellite. Um, so what I understood is that they're that they're using data from Landsat satellites, and Landsat is an incredible um, historic program going back to the '70s. A series of Earth observing satellites that can look at different land cover and land use changes. And so um, this data, this 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 data sets are looking at kind of 30 square meter resolutions of land cover. And that's um, what I read was about the size of a baseball infield. Like that's the dirt part. Like if you know as much about me as baseball, which I know mostly about baseball related snacks, but this is apparently like the, the diamond part plus kind of the pitcher's mound. So it's a very high resolution view um, of you know the earth's surface. And specifically, they have sensors um, on these satellites that are capturing the spectral ranges that are characteristic of forest vegetation. And so um, they're looking at um, kind of a 30% tree cover threshold 
So if an area has had gone from this kind of 2018 to 20, uh, 2020 period um, to the 2021 period, um, if that went below the 30% forest cover um, threshold, then it was considered deforested. If it went above, then it's gained forest land. And so they took that, they compared those kind of um, two year sets um, and, and looked at the anomalies there. And then they looked again at the 2021 data compared to a future pathway that would result in zero deforestation by 2030. So that's calculated to be about a 10% reduction in deforestation needed every year for, by this, in this decade to reach that goal. Well, the good news was there was some progress. So, you know, what were the reasons, uh, Jane, or what did this paper find to be the reasons for the progress? And then uh, the flip side, you know, what are some of the obstacles to continued improvement? Yeah, so I think the, um, some of the good news and the exceptional results that were found in actually decreasing deforestation, which I'm always like surprised when there's good news these days, is um, because of a few key countries where they did actually see a reduction in uh, deforestation. And then kind of the major one that they, uh, they talk about in the paper is Indonesia and the large efforts by the Indonesian government and by corporations that do business in or with Indonesia to actually reduce palm oil production. And that's one of the big biggest reasons they see this like much this progress in uh, reducing deforestation. Um, so for example, they kind of talk about that as of 2020, more than 80% 80, 80 of the palm oil refineries um, had made a promise to not cut down or degrade any more forests and that they've actually seen uh, progress in that. And there's also policy change so the Indonesian government imposed a moratorium on any new palm oil development. So the results of sort of both policy and corporate action has been able to slow deforestation in Indonesia. Although the, the ban by the Indonesian government did expire last year. So people are actually worried that some of that deforestation progress is actually gonna be reversed. Um, and then in terms of the moving forward, I think one area that the authors of the paper flag is that we have continued demand for um, commodities that require deforestation uh, or have been driving deforestation, including sort of the demand, the global demand for beef, continued prospecting for fossil fuels, the need for timber, um, and a lot of sort of the, the need for timber and beef uh, come from northern countries uh, where defore the deforestation to accommodate those needs come, comes from the global south. And so until we kind of address the, the growing demand for these commodities, uh, forests are continuing to be threatened and deforestation goals might not be met. So <laughs> I mean, my next question, maybe there isn't an answer to it, but I'd like both of your thoughts on, you know, what policy improvements, I know you're scientists, but as just the, as a human, what policy improvements do you, would you like to see in some of these countries that'll help us move towards a better outcome for the forests by 2030? Is that an impossible to answer question? The reason I'm pausing is like, I'm so wary of telling uh, sovereign nations what they should do um, as like, uh, I would, I mean, I would call the U S in my mind, a number one polluter because like some of the pollution 
um, some of the CO2 pollution that we uh, are responsible for is from our sort of purchasing of goods from China. So China's number one, but really we're the, we're the ones buying the goods. So we should claim those emissions. Um, so it's really hard as like the number one emitter and especially legacy emitter to like tell other countries, especially developing countries that don't have a lot of resources, what they should do in terms of policy to help address the problem that we've created. So that's why I'm sort of pausing. I don't know. If you could say something to the U.S. government about policies within the U.S., because it's not like we aren't losing forests here, too. Mm -hmm. Shannon, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I was just thinking about that. I mean, I like what you were saying, Jane, about kind of um, the, the consumption kind of pull um, on resources in general. And like, right, like we always talk about this, you know, what is it? Reduce, reuse, and recycle, but we forget the first R. And you know, the yeah, the issue is that wealthy countries do consume a lot, but if we're you know also encouraging um, you know lower income countries to develop, we want them to prosper as well. We don't want them to prosper in a way that we've modeled for them, right? So, I mean, what policies could the U.S. do? That I mean, it's Honestly, it's probably a dicey answer question for me to answer, given my position anyways. But um, I don't know, is it is it too far off to even cite something as, as like, doesn't the EU start, isn't the EU starting to put into place some kinds of um, policies around um, making things that can, that have to be a little bit more sustainable, that have to be able to be fixed, repaired, um, so that things are less kind of like single use. We talk about that a lot for plastics, but there's a lot of um, commodities that could probably go that way too. I don't know. I think I'm rambling at this point, but. No, I, just... I love that. Um, I love your point about also like the reduce gets left out and everyone's like really focused on the recycling and maybe the reuse, but certainly not reduce. Because you can't like, you can't like post on Twitter that you've reduced something and get a lot of likes. Yeah, uh, it's like a lack of action. But yeah. yeah, no, I like that idea a lot. Um I I people are talking about sort of like uh trade policy that's based on sort of carbon intensity of products that are being brought into the country. And I think that's interesting, but I think it penalizes against again countries that are not huge emitters, but that mm -hmm. are sort of the production, uh the production states for our consumption. Um, and I, it, it feels really weird to penalize them with like high tariffs, et cetera, when we're like the consumers, we have to really address the consumer side rather than the, and then also obviously the production side. But if there wasn't a consumer demand, there wouldn't be production emissions. Yeah. And, and it's always money too, right? It's like, again, with financial incentives, if we're pushing conservation in different places, you know, these 30 by 30 pledges and things like that. How are you making up for potential loss or like avoid it? Like if folks are standing to gain in different countries from the resources of, you know, of these forests, where is the transfer? Where, how are we helping them make up for that? Um, are there other ways to do that? I don't know, not a policymaker in that sense. <laughs> I think I've talked about this as like a, not a crazy idea, but we talk a lot about carbon removal on this podcast. And um, I think the science of carbon removal is fascinating. And, um, but in terms of like the carbon 
the, the commodity of carbon and all of the proliferation of carbon offsets and markets that sort of try to commoditize it. Um, and the companies that are making voluntary purchases, I think it would be interesting to consider what it would look like for these companies to, instead of like commoditizing and tracking carbon, sort of just have 10% uh, of their total like profits allocated to their license to operate in general. And those funds have to go towards conservation and betterment of humanity kind of projects. Uh, instead of sort of focusing on carbon, they just have to focus on making the world a better place. And carbon can be one of those things, but it doesn't have to be the only thing. If we like focus on forest conservation, there are obvious carbon benefits um, from that activity. Just putting it out there, corporations, think about it. Ten, put 10% <laughs> of your profits into uh, conservation and see if we can get somewhere. It's a little bit moving away from Put us. some money into the ESG goals, I guess. Yeah, Ooh. moving away from a strict carbon accounting to a more of a social and uh, ecosystem benefit impact. And so, you know, the, the hard thing about all of these things I, I find is they all have to answer to shareholders and directors and everybody wants something that's measurable and they can take credit for it to your point, Jane, like on Twitter. So we also, I feel like have to change the mentality, which is a huge, huge, obviously thing. Uh, hey, and this week we might be, uh, Twitter might not be a thing that people want to like uh, tout their progress on anymore. So we'll see where that, that, all, yeah. that all ends up. I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching the progress on that yeah. we might um, need a new public square where people can yell at each other yeah that's a whole nother show but i sometimes uh you know the public square of twitter does not seem to be the public square that the founders were thinking about just it saying never is it never <laughs> is uh so i'm gonna the turn it over to you for some good news uh jane that's I think relevant to the deforestation mm -hmm. policy question. So um, yeah, what are you thinking about this week? Yeah, uh, it's rare that there's any good news, um, but the good news of the week is that Brazil took a step back from the abyss of fascism and elected Luiz Inácio Lula de, da Silva, who won the election against Bolsonaro, who actually conceded finally today. He, he hadn't conceded yet until today. Um, Lula was, uh, this, this is potentially a win for climate because Lula oversaw really large efforts to slow deforestation in Brazil when he was previously the president. And his platform when he was running for election this time uh, included a really large emphasis on environment um, and climate change. So whereas Bolsonaro promoted a lot of the like sort of development of the rainforest and the deforestation rates under him were really high. Um, Lula has pledged to reverse many of those previous policies. And so, you know, uh, we'll see what actually happens, but it, it is potentially a good, good news for forests and for climate. Yeah, I was really excited to see that too. And I think that's, um, I saw that there was like, I think deforestation declined about 80% or something when Lula was um, in charge last time around. So he has some credibility there um, and definitely um, 
So I think it could be more challenging this time. So like, I think Bolsonaro really cut a lot of um, funding in science, cut enforcement of different regulations. I think, and then the last, when Lula was in, um, I think they attributed a lot of the de uh, deforestation declines in part to some of the improvements in the satellite observations and applying that data to, to actually act, uh, act on conserving the forest. But then also there was this enforcement of something they called um, the Brazil's forest code, which is estimated that if the forest code is enforced, and this is, a, this is something that requires private landowners to um, conserve and restore a portion of their, their privately held land, um, if that's enforced properly, that could get um, deforestation down in Brazil 89 percent by 2030. So almost at that zero percent deforestation goal, if they're able to do it at, by the end of this decade. And that's so important because land use change is like a third of Brazil's overall greenhouse gas emissions. So this could be potentially huge. Again, politics situations are tough. And there's a lot of, I think, Jane, you were talking about earlier about, you know, land rights, land ownership issues are, are tricky, uh, especially with a lot of the indigenous politics down there. But I see it as hopeful. And it really reinforces what I tell folks all the time when they ask me, what can I do on climate? My main takeaway is you, as an individual, the main thing that you can contribute is your vote for pro-climate leadership. That is the thing. So Fingers crossed, we're all rooting for you, Lula. Yeah, go Brazil. Thank you for giving us an example of what it looks like to not continue sliding into dictatorship and craziness. <laughs> well, with that, I will wrap up our science episode and also a friendly reminder to everybody who listens to vote because our country's elections are next Tuesday. Um, and I thank you both, Jane and Shannon, for being here today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Happy voting, Thanks. everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal. Carbon removal.